Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Next week, two of the world's foremost human relations organizations, the National Urban League and AJC, will unite against surging levels of anti-Semitism and racism to declare Black Jewish Unity Week. Together, we will strengthen ties between our nation's Black and Jewish communities and combat all forms of hate. To discuss the importance of this event and to talk about the challenges of fighting racism, I'm joined now by Clint Odom, the National Urban League Senior Vice President for Policy and Advocacy and the Executive Director of the Urban League's Washington Bureau. Clint, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, this special week, uh, this Black Jewish Unity Week is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening because of rising anti-Semitism and racism in this country. My listeners hear plenty about anti-Semitism, so I just wanted to start out by asking you this. It's been a hell of a summer. How are you? I would describe uh, myself as weathered a little bit. We've been going through this for quite some time this summer, uh, at least the notoriety of these uh, police incidents uh, is much higher than it has been in the past. So we're, we're hanging in there. Uh, we don't have a choice uh, because this work is so important. Uh, and it really does reinvigorate me to see that we've got allies in this fight. And we've always had allies in this fight, but to see them step up in the way that they have has really reinvigorated me. And I'm very excited to keep the fight going. I'm sure that our listeners are familiar with the name the Urban League because it is etched into the annals of history of this country. And, and anyone who knows anything about the civil rights uh, movement will know the names of the Urban League of the NAACP, uh, SNCC. We can go a layer deeper also and, and start really getting to the deep cuts. But tell us a little bit about what the Urban League has been up to lately and what you've all been up to, especially uh, over this summer in the wake of the George Floyd killing and other events in recent months. Well, we're a 110-year-old civil rights and economic empowerment organization. And we have been working on, I'd like to say, ending systemic racism for the past 110 years. Uh, we've been doing that through our programs, uh, such as making uh, housing more afford affordable, teaching people how to purchase homes, how to stay in homes. We've been helping people to get work, meaningful work that can sustain them and their families. We've been working in the traditional voting rights area and civil rights area uh, for the entirety of our existence. Uh, but social justice has taken on a real importance in our work right now. Uh, as as well as doing all of this work in the midst of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that's so interesting what you say about systemic racism and then specifically, you know, citing home buying and things like that. You didn't mention education, but I, I think there's a pretty robust education portfolio at, at the National Urban League as well. Absolutely. I think if you look at AJC's goals and the National Urban League's goals, you'll see mirror images of, of each other. That's been the real cool thing about this, uh, this partnership as well. And all of these things that people are talking about, and I'll show my millennialness, all of the things that people are, are posting on Instagram talking about, you know, explaining what systemic racism is and why, you know, wealth divides between black and white communities are, are so important and underpin so many elements of, of racial injustice today. All of those things are things that the National Urban League is working on. 
Absolutely. And I can't say that when I started about a year and a half ago, I spent the previous 10 years working in the United States Senate. Including for vice presidential nominee, Senator Kamala Harris, I believe. Crazy how these things happen. Working for her and, and the agenda that she pursued is so consistent with the work that I'm doing today. One of the first things we did when we walked into the place is lead a resolution condemning hate, anti-Semitism, anti-Black racism, xenophobia, homophobia. It's as important to her as it was to me. And so coming here was just a natural extension of that. But as I was saying, just the times in which we live are so unique and perilous. The parallels between the early 1960s, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, and today are really, really compelling. It's almost like we're back in the 60s again. I want to go there right now because this week is going to be all about Black Jewish relations. And the story of Black Jewish relations is not a new one. We might be writing a new chapter, but there's a whole book that comes before us here. So what's one element, Clint, of the Black Jewish relationship that has meant a lot to you personally? I would probably say the, the religious and spiritual aspect of the relationship. Uh, growing up as a, as a young kid in the Deep South, there were not a lot of Jewish people around. Although they were present, we didn't know it. I grew up Protestant uh, Christian. And a great story is on Sundays, we were always able to use the parking lot of the temple across the street. And it used to just puzzle me as to how generous the temple folks could be, <laughs> given that uh, they must have services on Sunday, too. <laughs> so either the temple was empty or they were just being exceedingly generous. Over time, and, and as I moved out of the South and went to law school and, and lived here on the East Coast, I got a much greater appreciation not only for the religion. My wife, for instance, used to teach at a Jewish day camp in New Rochelle, New York. But um, just meeting so many friends of the Jewish faith, drawing those connections between my own faith and their own, and also learning the rich history of Black and Jewish communities, especially in the era of civil rights. As a lawyer, uh, I was a big fan, is really the only word you could come up with, of Thurgood Marshall. And no understanding of the work that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund did would be complete without understanding the role that Jack Greenberg played and lots of other Jewish folks in philanthropy, in spirituality, in pursuit of the nonviolence movement. Just a wonderful partnership over the years. As a religious person myself, that resonates with me a lot. As it happens, our listeners have probably heard me talk about this before. For college, I went to a joint program between Columbia University and the Jewish Theological Seminary. And actually, not at my graduation, but at the graduation of the class ahead of me, which I attended, Representative John Lewis spoke. And of course, John Lewis, who all of our listeners will remember, passed away uh, this summer. I think he actually was an ordained minister. And he told a story that I'm sure you've heard before, because I've heard him tell it multiple times, of preaching to his chickens in Troy, Alabama. And that had a certain resonance in this audience of basically all Jews, including some who were going on into the rabbinate. Um, so those ties between our communities where, where not everyone is a person of faith, but certainly there is deep faith and religious history kind of threaded throughout our communities. I think those are really, really powerful things to focus on. And I hope over time, you know, and you take a look at surveys of religion in the country. I know that Pew has done some study in this area. Uh, religion is trending down a little bit. People don't always necessarily consider themselves religious if you look at community surveys. And so it's really important to reinvigorate this relationship and put it on a firm spiritual footing, 
you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition is so rich in the African-American community, and there's just so much there to really build on. I'm really looking forward to getting that history more prominently understood and remembered in our communities. So when we're talking about Black Jewish unity, right, and we're talking about building Black Jewish unity, there, there really, I think there are two levels to it. And, and this is something that we talk about with a lot of our advocacy work at AJC. There's the grassroots and there's the grass tops, right? I want to ask you about both. Let's start with the grass tops, right? At the high profile level, at the celebrity role model level, the politician level, what do you think needs to happen there to demonstrate that Jewish people and Black people should work together and are stronger together. The grass tops may be one of the more important roles in unity and understanding. We are a celebrity-driven culture, for better or for worse. And ideas have a lot more resonance and a lot more acceptance when someone that you know and admire is saying the same thing. So grass tops, to that extent, are the key in moving opinion. Notions like reparations, notions like Black Lives Matter, notions like social justice have moved, and pretty quickly, I think because athletes, because celebrities on television and other artists have been saying the same thing. And in a short period of time, we've seen opinions shift in this country, not just age, not just religion, not just race, but everything seems to be moving in the right direction from a popular standpoint. The grassroots, which we're gonna talk about next, is where you really determine how sustainable this movement is, right? Yeah, so tell us about that. I mean, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our churches, our synagogues, our mosques, you know, how can we strengthen those relations? Sure, and I've seen a lot of encouraging evidence that we can do this at the grassroots level. This is a very human, uh, very empathetic movement when we're talking about grassroots. We've seen some of these grassroots efforts come up in Pittsburgh, for instance, and in New Jersey, uh, and in Brooklyn, where when horrible acts of hate, murder, and violence take place, the communities come together, and they usually come together first with religion. It's the pastors, it's the churchgoers, it's the temple goers that really give me some hope that we aren't just in a moment, but that we're in a movement. So I, I think in many ways, the church and the faith community are, are an essential piece of grassroots. That's kind of what I'm seeing sort of on the ground right now. I think Black Jewish Unity Week can drive those grassroots even deeper mm -hmm. because un understanding the tragedy of the moment is not nearly as important as understanding these deep historical ties, right? in our faith, in our families, and what we want from each other. And in our shared history, sometimes of things that aren't so great, sometimes shared history of oppression. Absolutely. And for our listeners who want to learn more about Black Jewish Unity Week, they should go to ajc.org slash blackjewishunity or text blackjewishunity, all one word, to 52889. Not to keep hitting the faith note here, you know, we're, we're a, a pretty secular organization, AJC, but I love what you said about the houses of worship. I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is this incredible kind of Jewish bastion, historic, whatever. And if you go 20 blocks down from me and 20 blocks up from me, you probably are going to pass by 20 synagogues total. And we're also steps away. I mean, we're a mile, two miles away from Harlem. 
And the two neighborhoods are very different. And that's something that's worth exploring as well. Why that is, how that happened, et cetera. The strengths and the challenges of both communities. But I was in synagogue on Shabbat after the shooting in Muncie. And lo and behold, there in, in the front row was a, a delegation from a church in Harlem that wanted to come and, and to be there and to show solidarity. And they got up and, and spoke after services. And then fast forward to this summer, we're all obviously in lockdown, but uh, the rabbi of the synagogue made kind of a, a Zoom appearance at that church's services after the killing of George Floyd to talk about solidarity with the Black community in the wake of the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many of the challenges of injustice that are being faced right now. And I think you're right that the grassroots level, it, it so often does start in those kinds of houses of worship, our religious leaders reaching out one to the other. You know, something that you said really struck me about the proximity of Black community and Jewish community in a relatively small plot of, of land. As a policy wonk, I'm sure you appreciate this, but you know, just for the benefit of your listening audience, Blacks and Jews were both subject to the same kinds of redlining restrictions in many ways throughout much of the United States, where banks would identify areas and they would say, this is a desirable area and this is a less desirable area. And so, you know, Jewish and Black families were often circumscribed by these lending lines that still have an ongoing lingering vestige today. If you look at housing segregation patterns, certainly in the African-American community, they are just as bad as they were in the 1960s. Things like Black home ownership, which is at a low point, especially because of the pandemic and foreclosures and evictions, is worse than it was in the late 1960s. So some of these things we're, we're still wrestling with, they seem coincidental, but they're not coincidental at all. But again, it's this proximity, you know, that gives me hope and, and hope that even outside of a crisis, we can expand and strengthen these relationships. Crises are great reasons to get together, but it's the more sustainable relationships happen over time outside of a crisis built on shared values and shared interests. So once again, this Black Jewish Unity Week has the potential to, to be a real game changer. Well, so talk a little bit more about that. What do you hope is going to come out of this week? If you believe that the basis of a better relationships and greater understanding comes from exposure, then my hope is that we can use this week to focus on our rich history, on our shared cultural values, and to help understand things that we may not understand about each other, but to be able to come together in a safe place and talk about those things. This has been tried in lots of different ways, you know, with lots of different impetus over the years. But in this country, as you know, until you can make a sort of a holiday of it, until Hallmark starts to sell cars, <laughs> it's really difficult to have something that is stained and that you can go back to, you know, every year. And so that's the thing that excites me the most. I, I know how excited I was to leave, you know, the Deep South uh, and to meet people of different faiths, uh, including the Jewish faith, and, and get to know them and get to count them among, you know, my close friends. I would like that for everyone. And so that when issues come up in our communities, as we saw in Brooklyn, I think earlier this year, there was a really terrible assault in Brooklyn by a woman, African-American woman. And if we had a built-in 
long-standing, unbreakable trust between our communities. We can weather these storms. We can come together in mutual condemnation, mutual understanding, and mutual healing. It's not enough just to condemn something, but it's more important, I think, to learn from it and make sure that it doesn't happen, uh, doesn't happen again. And then five years hence, we can be sending each other uh, Black Jewish Unity uh, Week cards produced by Hallmark. And- Absolutely, and, <laughs> and creating whole new language, you know, ar- around it. You know, it, it it could be it could be urban slang and Yiddish expressions. That, that, you know, unless you're in the know, you, you don't you don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm hopeful. Hallmark, if you're listening, <laughs> might be on to something big here. <laughs> see, we'll see. We'll see what strings we can pull there. Um, I want to close by asking you for a few tips for our listeners. Actually, a few months ago, we had an amazing friend of AJC on the podcast named Eric Ward, uh, the executive director of the Western States Center. We were talking about racism, and I asked him what he thought as a professional opponent of racism and as a black man, what he thought American Jews should be doing to fight racism. Um, His answer was pretty surprising to me, actually, because he said the best way for us to fight racism was to fight anti-Semitism, since in his work, he's found that white supremacist racism is always based on a foundation of anti-Semitism. So first, I'm just interested in, in your reaction to, to that. I, I think I'm citing him basically correctly. I'm interested in your assessment of that. And second, I, I want to give you a chance to answer the question you know, from square one. Also, you know, what would you like to see, Clint? What would you like to see American Jews doing proactively now to be effective allies in the fight against racism? And I want to go back to Eric's point. Let me see if I could make this one first. I've only recently come to understand the difference between anti-racism and anti-discrimination. As a lawyer, I've grown up understanding that if you want to fix racism, you have to attack it as a matter of non-discrimination. Don't discriminate against people in hiring. Don't discriminate against kids in school. And sometimes that anti-discrimination is in the form of colorblindness. So whatever the remedy is, it can't be race specific, right? Because the constitution doesn't allow such a thing. But let's let's just come up with big, broad, sweeping solutions that African-Americans might incidentally benefit from, you know, by virtue of maybe being lower middle income people. We're going to come up with solutions that will work for everybody, including African-Americans. I've now come to understand that that's just not cutting it. Those great disparities that you talked about, Sefi, at the beginning, they're persistent for a reason. It's like trying to perform surgery with your eyes closed. You may be able to root around and feel where the patient is, but your ability to be precise with a scalpel uh, and, and fix the problem and identify the problem is impossible if you don't open your eyes. That has been the character of how we approach race in this country for decades. I've now come to understand and have really been encouraging others to join me in this is becoming an anti-racist. It's saying, I may not have owned slaves. I may have never committed an act of racism or discrimination. Even if that's true, you have to personally get involved to fix these problems. It's not enough to say, well, you know, we have laws to address those issues. Laws have been very inexact and very unhelpful in many ways. 
you've got to get in there, roll up your sleeves and say, okay, is lack of capital in the black community a problem? I need to figure out how to get more capital into black communities. Are educational disparities a problem? Okay, I need to figure out how do we improve schools, whether it's funding, whether it's through pedagogy, whatever we need to do, but we need to come up with solutions that actually help black people and not just continue to perpetuate these gaps in household median wealth and educational opportunities and health and civic engagement. That's my biggest message to the community. Be an anti-racist, just as you know, we should all be fighting against anti-Semitism. It's not enough to turn your back and say, well, you know, they're not talking about me. They are talking about you. And it's when we get to the point where those protests and in the halls of Congress where we're trying to make change, we see people who look like you and see people who look like me and see people who are Asian and, and people who are from all different walks of life saying, we are here because we care and Black Lives Matter, and we've got to change the way this country works. I want to dive in and, and ask a million more questions and, and, and talk so much more about where you just took this conversation. We are unfortunately out of time. So I hope that this will be an effective way to whet our listeners' appetites for the week ahead. I should just add that in addition to his two impressive titles at the National Urban League, Clint wears another hat. It's one of my favorite hats. It's the hat of organizational podcast host. And Clint is one of the hosts of For the Movement, the National Urban League's podcast, which people should check out and especially check out for this week's episode where uh, my colleague Dan Elbaum will be a guest on the show. We will link to the podcast in our show notes. Clint, let me just say once more, thank you so much for joining us this week. God bless you, Sefi. Thank you for letting me be here. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Dove Wilker, the director of AJC's Atlanta office and the national director of Black Jewish Relations. When you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thank you, Sefi. During the week, my daughters have heard me talk nonstop about the Israeli team in the Tour de France. So I'm sure they're looking for a bit of a reprieve, which I'm grateful to provide them because we will no doubt spend time talking about Black Jewish Unity Week at our Shabbat dinner, social distancing with friends and their school-aged children. As my daughters went back to school in person a few weeks ago, I realized my life has changed. No longer were they hearing me on calls or in meetings talking about work. They aren't listening into my conversations, trying to grab tidbits of information from me or my colleagues. We went from them being a part of all that I do to me intentionally sharing my work with them. So while the marches for racial justice were constant conversations in my household over the summer, I look forward to speaking with them about the importance of black Jewish relations, not just in Atlanta, but across the United States and around the world. We will discuss the history of the Urban League and the value it provides to our community. We will talk about the connections between blacks and Jews and black Jews in sports, business, entertainment, academia, civil society, and religion. We might tune in to our virtual Shabbat morning service and join a black church for service on Sunday morning. We will talk about diversity within the Jewish community and diversity within the black community. We might take a drive through Atlanta and visit historic sites just as we did after Congressman John Lewis passed. And I will once again remind them of the need for us to speak out for others whenever and wherever we are. But mostly, I look forward to seeing smiles on their faces when they realize that they too can be a part of this historic moment of Black Jewish unity. 
That's what we'll be discussing at our Shabbat table. And Manya, what will you be talking about? Thank you for those thoughts, Dove. I also want to mention the column you recently co-wrote for the Jewish News Syndicate. The point of the column was to warn readers that anti-Semitism from individuals in certain corners has cast a shadow on some really important social justice movements and institutions carrying out vital work. I appreciated the fact that the column noted the positive influence of the Black nationalist movement of the late 1960s and 70s, and the efforts that continue today to address education and health disparities, food shortages, unemployment, problems we all should be striving to fix together. Now, I recently read about a book called Black Power Jewish Politics by San Francisco State University professor Mark Dollinger. He presents a rather unorthodox viewpoint, which is perhaps why I liked it. He argues that the Zionist movement actually drew inspiration from the black nationalist movement. He writes that when the state of Israel was created in 1948, American Jews were pleased, but no real movement to celebrate and support a Jewish state caught fire here in the United States. Not until 1967, when the state of Israel fought in the Six-Day War, then thousands of young Jews literally boarded flights to Israel to help the Jewish state. As American Jews started to drift away from organized religion and different denominations formed to accommodate differences of opinion and different strains of Judaism, Israel became a central part of Jewish identity, a common cause that united, well, just about everyone. Dollinger suggests that the rise of black nationalism at the same time American Jews galvanized around Israel was no coincidence. As he says, quote, a whole bunch of young Jews who were nationalists in their proclivities but didn't have a place to put it could put it in Zionism. Now, why does this matter? Why am I bringing this up? To be provocative? Well, perhaps. But seriously, I think it matters because if his theory is valid, and I need to read the book to really figure out if I buy into it, if it is valid, it illustrates an example of Black Jewish synergy. And that's also important, just as Black Jewish unity is important. When we talk about history, we often talk about conflicts and tension. We talk about who stood in solidarity, just as we talk about the way Blacks and Jews marched for civil rights and the freedom of Soviet Jews. But what about when we're not standing side by side? What about when we're just doing our own thing? We're still learning from each other, appreciating each other, inspiring each other. It's important to step back and look beyond the conventional narrative. And I would say this is a pretty unconventional narrative. But conventional and unconventional narratives, they help us better understand each other. And that's what's on my mind this week. Sefi? Well, we're obviously all thinking a ton about Black and Jewish unity today and all next week and hopefully for a long time to come until people stop being surprised by the idea that Black people and Jewish people can and should work together to strengthen one another. This week was a milestone in another surprising union, Israeli-Arab unity. Now, that, for real, was a very surprising type of unity up until about, oh, five minutes ago? The story has saturated the headlines, so we're all familiar with it, at least in broad strokes. The U.S. has brokered a peace accord, including full normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And some AJC insiders know about the critical role that AJC has played over the past two decades in making this peace possible. You heard my colleague Jason Isaacson talk about that on last week's episode. I take immense pride in knowing that there is no NGO anywhere in the world that has played a more significant role in bringing us to what happened this week. What happened this week 
is that an El Al flight took off from Ben Gurion Airport and landed about three hours later in Abu Dhabi. The flight was that short because for the first time ever, Saudi Arabia allowed an Israeli airline to fly over Saudi airspace. Upon landing in the UAE, the Israeli delegation featuring U.S. and Israeli officials and journalists was welcomed with open arms, treated to tours of notable places in the Emirates, offered kosher food and first-rate accommodations. The Israelis and the Emiratis signed the first of several rounds of normalization agreements, these focusing on finance and trade. An Israeli president told the media that the conversation about opening respective embassies was moving ahead quickly. And then, about 24 hours after touching down, the Israelis reboarded their El Al plane, and again, this time, without any important Americans aboard, were allowed to overfly Saudi airspace on their way home. With full normalization with the UAE in process, and with this significant development with Saudi Arabia, which announced after the second flight that, indeed, its policy was now to allow all commercial flights from any country, meaning Israel, to fly through its airspace, it has been quite a month for the Middle East. In the 1990s, Shimon Peres, who would go on to serve as president of Israel, said that the Oslo Accords had created, quote, a new Middle East. Yasser Arafat's commitment to terrorism would tragically prove Paris wrong. But what about now? Are these events, perhaps, finally, the beginning of a new Middle East? One where Israel and the Arab countries in the region recognize that they are destined to be neighbors, so they might as well choose to be friends? Only time will tell. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.